Section eight of Beacon Lights of History, Volume seven, Great Women, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Madame de Maintenon, Part one. A.D. sixteen thirty five to seventeen nineteen. The political woman. I present Madame de Maintenon as one of those great women who have exerted a powerful influence on the political destinies of a nation, since she was the life of the French monarchy for more than thirty years during the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. In the earlier part of her career she was a queen of society, but her social triumphs pale before the luster of that power which she exercised as the wife of the greatest monarch of the age, so far as splendor and magnificence can make a monarch great. No woman in modern times ever rose so high from a humble position, with the exception of Catherine I, wife of Peter the Great. She was not born a duchess, like some of those brilliant women who shed glory around the absolute throne of the proudest monarch of his century, but rose to her magnificent position by pure merit, her graces, her virtues, and her abilities having won the respect and admiration of the overlauded but sagacious King of France and yet she was well born so far as blood is concerned since the protestant family of duaubigine to which she belonged was one of the oldest in the kingdom her father however was a man of reckless extravagance and infamous habits and committed follies and crimes which caused him to be imprisoned in bordeaux while in prison he compromised the character of the daughter of his jailer and by her means escaped to america he returned and was again arrested his wife followed him to his cell and it was in this cell that the subject of this lecture was born 1635 subsequently her miserable father obtained his release sailed with his family to martinique and died there in extreme poverty his wife heartbroken returned to france and got her living by her needle until she too worn out by poverty and misfortune died leaving her daughter to strive as she had striven with a cold and heartless world this daughter became at first a humble dependent on one of her rich relatives and the future wife of louis the fourteenth could be seen on a morning assisting the coachman to groom the horses or following a flock of turkeys with her breakfast in a basket but she was beautiful and bright and panted like most ambitious girls for an entrance into what is called society society at that time in france was brilliant intellectual and wicked there was the blending of calculating interest and religious asceticism when women of the world after having exhausted its pleasures retired to cloisters and sacrificed their natural affections to family pride it was an age of intellectual idlers when men and women having nothing to do spent their times in salons and learned the art of conversation which was followed by the art of letter-writing to reach the salons of semi-literary and semi-fashionable people where rank and wealth were balanced by wit, became the desire of the young Mademoiselle Duabagine. Her entrance into society was effected in a curious way. At that time there lived in Paris, about the year 1650, a man whose house was the center of gay and literary people. Those who did not like the stiffness of the court or the pedantries of the Hotel de Rambouillet. His name was Scarron, a popular and ribald poet a comic dramatist, a buffoon, a sort of Rabelais, whose inexhaustible wit was the admiration of the city. He belonged to a good family, and originally was a man of means. His uncle had been a bishop, and his father a member of the Parliament of Paris. But he had wasted his substance in riotous living, and was reduced to a small pension from the government. 
his profession was originally that of a priest and he continued through life to wear the ecclesiastical garb he was full of maladies and miseries and his only relief was in society in spite of his poverty he contrived to give suppers they would now be called dinners which were exceedingly attractive to his house came the noted characters of the day mademoiselle de scuderay the novelist marigny the songwriter ernault the translator of lucretius de gramont the pet of the court chatillon the duchesses de la salire and sevienne even ninon de enclos all bright and fashionable people whose wit and raillery were the admiration of the city it so happened that to a reception of the abbe scarron was brought one day the young lady destined to play so important a part in the history of her country but her dress was too short which so mortified her in the splendid circle to which she was introduced that she burst into tears and scarron was obliged to exert all his tact to comfort her yet she made a good impression since she was beautiful and witty and a letter which she wrote to a friend soon after which letter scarron happened to see was so remarkable that the crippled dramatist determined to make her his wife she only sixteen he forty-two so infirm that he could not walk and so poor that the guests frequently furnished the dishes for the common entertainments and with all these physical defects for his body was bent nearly double and notwithstanding that he was one of the coarsest and profanest men of that ungodly age she accepted him what price will not an aspiring woman pay for social position for even a marriage with scarron was to her a step in the ladder of social elevation did she love this bloated and crippled sensualist or was she carried away by admiration of his brilliant conversation or was she actuated by a far-reaching policy i look upon her as a born female jesuit believing in the principle that the end justifies the means nor is such jesuitism incompatible with pleasing manners amiability of temper and great intellectual radiance it equally marked i can fancy jezebel cleopatra and catherine de medici moreover in france it has long been the custom for poor girls to seek eligible matches without reference to love it does not seem that this hideous marriage provoked scandal in fact it made the fortune of mademoiselle d'aubergine she now presided at entertainments which were the gossip of the city and to which stupid dukes aspired in vain for scarron would never have a dull man at his table not even if he were loaded with diamonds and could trace his pedigree to the paladins of charlemagne but by presiding at parties made up of the elite of the fashionable and cultivated society of paris this ambitious woman became acquainted with those who had influence at court so that when her husband died and she was cut off from his life pension and reduced to poverty she was recommended to madame de montespan the king's mistress as the governess of her children it was a judicious appointment madame scarron was then thirty-four in the pride of womanly grace and dignity with rare intellectual gifts and accomplishments there is no education more effective than that acquired by constant intercourse with learned and witty people even the dinner-table is no bad school for one naturally bright and amiable there is more to be learned from conversation than from books the living voice is a great educator madame scarron on the death of her husband was already a queen of society as the governess of montespan's children which was a great position since it introduced her to the notice of the king himself the fountain of all honor and promotion her habits of life were somewhat changed life became more sombre by the irksome duties of educating unruly children and the forced retirement to which she was necessarily subjected 
she could have lived without this preferment since the pension of her husband was restored to her and could have made her salon the resort of the best society but she had deeper designs not to be the queen of a fashionable circle did she now aspire but to be the leader of a court but this aim she was obliged to hide it could only be compassed by transcendent tact prudence patience and good sense all of which qualities she possessed in an eminent degree it was necessary to gain the confidence of an imperious and jealous mistress which was only to be done by the most humble assiduities before she could undermine her in the affections of the king she had also to gain his respect and admiration without allowing any improper intimacy she had to disarm jealousy and win confidence to be as humble in address as she was elegant in manners and win a selfish man from pleasure by the richness of her conversation and the severity of her own morals little by little she began to exercise a great influence over the mind of the king when he was becoming wearied of the railleries of his exacting favorite and when some of the delusions of life were beginning to be dispelled he then found great solace and enjoyment in the society of madame scarron whom he enriched enabling her to purchase the estate of montenon and to assume its name she soothed his temper softened his resentments and directed his attention to a new field of thought and reflection she was just the opposite of montespan in almost everything the former won by the solid attainments of the mind the latter by her sensual charms the one talked on literature art and religious subjects the other on fetes balls reviews and the glories of the court and its innumerable scandals montenon reminded the king of his duties without sermonizing or moralizing but with the insidious flattery of a devout worshipper of his genius and power montespan directed his mind to pleasures which had lost their charm montenon was always amiable and sympathetic montespan provoked the king by her resentment her imperious exactions her ungovernable fits of temper her haughty sarcasm montespan was calm modest self-possessed judicious wise montespan was passionate extravagant unreasonable montespan always appealed to the higher nature of the king montespan to the lower the one was a sincere friend dissuading from folly the other an exacting lover demanding perpetually new favors to the injury of the kingdom and the subversion of the king's dignity of character the former ruled through reason the latter through the passions montespan was irreproachable in her morals preserved her self-respect and tolerated no improper advances having no great temptations to subdue steadily adhering to that policy which she knew would in time make her society indispensable montespan was content to be simply mistress with no forecast of the future and with but little regard to the interests or honor of her lord montespan became more attractive every day from the variety of her intellectual gifts and her unwearied efforts to please and instruct montespan although a bright woman amidst the glories of a dazzling court at last wearied disgusted and repelled and yet the woman who gradually supplanted madame de montespan by superior radiance of mind and soul openly remained her friend through all her waning influence and pretended to come to her rescue the friendship of the king for madame de montespan began as early as seventeen sixty two and during the twelve years she was the governess of montespan's children she remained discreet and dignified i dismiss him said she always despairing never repulsed what a transcendent actress what astonishing tact what shrewdness blended with self-control she conformed herself to his tastes and notions at the supper tables of her palsied husband she had been gay unstilted and simple 
but with the king she had become formal prudish ceremonious fond of etiquette and pharisaical in her religious life she discreetly ruled her royal lover in the name of virtue and piety in sixteen seventy five the king created her marquise de montenon on the disgrace of madame de montespan when the king was forty-six madame de montenon still remained at court having a conspicuous office in the royal household as mistress of the robes to the dauphiness so that her nearness to the king created no scandal she was now a stately woman with sparkling black eyes a fine complexion beautiful teeth and exceedingly graceful manners the king could not now live without her for he needed a counsellor whom he could trust it must be borne in mind that the great colbert on whose shoulder had been laid the burdens of the monarchy had recently died on the death of the queen sixteen eighty five louis made madame de montignon his wife she being about fifty and he forty-seven this private and secret marriage was never openly divulged during the life of the king although generally surmised this placed madame de montignon for she went by this title in a false position to say the least it was humiliating amid all the splendors to which she was raised for if she were a lawful wife she was not a queen some perhaps suppose she was in the position of those favorites whose fate again and again has been to fall one thing is certain the king would have made her his mistress years before but to this she would never consent she was too politic too ambitious too discreet to make that immense mistake yet after the dismissal of montespan she seemed to be such until she had with transcendent art and tact attained her end it is a flaw in her character that she was willing so long to be aspersed showing that power was dearer to her than reputation Bousset, when consulted by the king as to his intended marriage approved of it only on the ground that it was better to make a foolish marriage than violate the seventh commandment la chaise the jesuit confessor who travelled in a coach and six recommended it because madame de montignon was his tool but louvois felt the impropriety as well as fenelon and advised the king not thus to commit himself the dauphin was furious the archbishop of paris simply did his duty in performing the ceremony doubtless reasons of state imperatively demanded that the marriage should not openly be proclaimed and still more that the widow of scarron should not be made the queen of france louis was too much of a politician and too proud a man to make this concession had he raised his unacknowledged wife to the throne it would have resulted in political complications which would have embarrassed his whole subsequent reign he dared not do this he could not thus scandalize all europe and defy all the precedents of france and no one knew this better than madame de montignon herself she appeared to be satisfied if she could henceforth live in virtuous relations her religious scruples are to be respected it is wonderful that she gained as much as she did in that proud cynical and worldly court and from the proudest monarch in the world but louis was not happy without her a proof of his respect and love at the age of forty-seven he needed the counsels of a wife amid his increasing embarrassments he was already wearied sickened and disgusted he now wanted repose friendship and fidelity he certainly was guilty of no error in marrying one of the most gifted women of his kingdom perhaps the most accomplished woman of the age interesting and even beautiful at fifty she was then in the perfection of mental and moral fascinations he made no other sacrifice than of his pride his fidelity to his wife and his constant devotion to her until he died proved the sincerity and depth of his attachment and her marvellous influence over him was on the whole good with the exception of her religious intolerance 
as the wife of louis the fourteenth the power of madame de montignon became almost unbounded her ambition was gratified and her end was accomplished she was the dispenser of court favors the arbiter of fortunes the real ruler of the land her reign was political as well as social she sat in the cabinet of the king and gave her opinions on state matters whenever she was asked her counsels were so wise that they generally prevailed no woman before or after her ever exerted so great an influence on the fortunes of a kingdom as did the widow of the poet scarron the court which she had adorned and ruled was not so brilliant as it had been under madame de montespan but was still magnificent she made it more decorous though probably more dull she was opposed to all foolish expenditures she discouraged the endless fetes and balls and masquerades which made her predecessor so popular but still versailles glittered with unparalleled wonders the fountains played grand equipages crowded the park the courtiers blazed in jewels and velvets and satins the salons were filled with all who were illustrious in france princes nobles ambassadors generals statesmen and ministers rivalled one another in the gorgeousness of their dresses women of rank and beauty displayed their graces in the salon de venus the articles of luxury and taste that were collected in the countless rooms of that vast palace almost exceeded belief and all these blazing rooms were filled even to the attic with aristocratic servitors who poured out perpetual incense to the object of their united idolatry who sat on almost an olympian throne never was a monarch served by such idolaters Bousset and fenelon taught his children bordelot and massillon adorned his chapel la chaise and l'atelier directed his conscience beaulieu and moliere sharpened his wit la rochefoucauld cultivated his taste la fontaine wrote his epigrams racine chronicled his wars de turenne commanded his armies fouquet and colbert arranged his finances Molé and de Augusteau pronounced his judgments louvois laid out his campaigns valbon fortified his citadels riquet dug his canals mansard constructed his palaces poissin decorated his chambers lebrun painted his ceilings lenortre laid out his grounds guiardon sculptured his fountains montespan arranged his fetes while la vallier lafayette and sevigny all queens of beauty displayed their graces in the salon de venus what an array of great men and brilliant women to reflect the splendors of an absolute throne never was there such an eclat about a court it was one of the wonders of the age and louis never lost his taste for this outward grandeur he was ceremonious and exacting to the end he never lost the sense of his own omnipotence in his latter days he was sad and dejected but never exhibited his weakness among his worshippers he was always dignified and self-possessed he loved pomp as much as michelangelo loved art even in his bitterest reverses he still maintained the air of the grand monarch says henri martin etiquette without accepting the extravagant restraints which the court of france endured and which french genius would not support assumed an unknown extension proportioned to the increase of royal splendor it was adapted to serve the monarchy at the expense of the aristocracy and tended to make functions prevail over birth the great dukes and peers were multiplied in order to reduce their importance and the king gave the marshals precedence over them the court was a scientific and complicated machine which louis guided with sovereign skill at all hours in all places in the most trifling circumstances of life he was always king 
his affability never contradicted itself he expressed his interest and kindliness to all he showed himself indulgent to errors that could not be repaired his majesty was tempered by a grave familiarity and he wholly refrained from those pointed and ironical speeches which so cruelly wound when falling from the lips of a man that none can answer he taught all by his example the most exquisite courtesy to women manners acquired unequalled elegance the fetes exceeded everything which romance had dreamed in which the fairy splendors that wearied the eye were blended with the noblest pleasures of the intellect but whether appearing in mythological ballets or riding in tournaments in the armor of the heroes of antiquity or presiding at plays and banquets in his ordinary apparel with his thick flowing hair his loose surtout blazing with gold and silver and his profusion of ribbons and plumes always his air and port had something unique always he was the first among all his whole life was like a work of art and the role was admirably played because he played it conscientiously the king was not only sacred but he was supposed to have different blood in his veins from other men his person was invaluable he reigned it was universally supposed by divine right he was a divinely commissioned personage like saul and david he did not reign because he was able or powerful or wealthy because he was a statesman or a general but because he had a right to reign which no one disputed this adoration of royalty was not only universal but it was deeply seated in the minds of men and marked strongly by all the courtiers and generals and bishops and poets who surrounded the throne of louis Bousset and fenelon as well as colbert and louvois racine and moliere as well as conde and turenne especially the nobility of the realm looked up to the king as the source and centre of their own honours and privileges even the people were proud to recognise in him a sort of divinity and all persons stood awestruck in the presence of royalty all this reverence was based on ideas which have ever moved the world such as sustained popes in the middle ages and emperors in ancient born and patriarchal rule among early oriental peoples religion as well as law and patriotism invested monarchs with this sacred and inalienable authority never greater than when louis the fourteenth began to reign but with all his grandeur louis the fourteenth did not know how to avail himself of the advantages which fortune and accident placed in his way he was simply magnificent like xerxes like a man who had entered into a vast inheritance which he did not know what to do with he had no profound views of statesmanship like augustus or tiberius he had no conception of what the true greatness of a country consisted in hence his vast treasures were spent in useless wars silly pomps and inglorious pleasures his grand court became the scene of cabals and rivalries scandals and follies his wars from which he expected glory ended only in shame his great generals passed away without any one to take their place his people instead of being enriched by a development of national resources became poor and discontented while his persecutions decimated his subjects and sowed the seeds of future calamities even the learned men who shed lustre around his throne prostituted their talents to nurse his egotism and did but little to elevate the national character neither pascal with his intense hostility to spiritual despotism nor racine with the severe taste which marked the classic authors of greece and rome nor fenelon with his patriotic enthusiasm and clear perception of the moral strength of empires dared to give full scope to his genius but all were obliged to veil their sentiments in vague panegyrics of ancient heroes at the close of the seventeenth century the great intellectual lights had disappeared under the withering influences of despotism as in ancient rome under the emperors all manly independence had fled 
and literature went through an eclipse the absorbing egotism which made louis the fourteenth jealous of the fame of conde and luxembourg or fearful of the talents of louvois and colbert or suspicious of the influence of racine and fenelon also led him to degrade his nobility by menial offices and institute in his court a burdensome formality end of section eight